0: Welcome to Saving the Game. This is episode 83, Personal Horror, recorded Thursday, April 7th of 2016 with your hosts, Grant, Peter, and Greg. Welcome to Saving the Game, I'm Grant.
1: I'm Peter. And my name is Greg Stolze.
0: And we've got Greg on with us uh, from, oh boy, a lot of things, honestly. But uh, the big thing right now is you've got a Kickstarter going for Unknown Army's third edition, which is why you're on here and I'm trying desperately not to (laughs) squeak. So Greg, tell us uh, a little bit more about who you are, what makes you famous on the internet and in the RPG industry.
1: Okay, uh, who I am, I'm a nice Iowa boy born in 1970 who uh, ran into an insurance uh, salesman in college who was named Jonathan Tweet. A mutual friend of ours introduced us because she said, oh, there's this weird game this weird guy's running and you'd probably like it. And from there, I exploited my friendship with him to uh, get published at Atlas Games and uh, in Shadis Magazine initially. And from there, once I, uh, once I'd gotten a taste of being paid to write, every other job I did just, you know, seemed hollow. And to be fair, I was not that good at them. So this is what I do now. Awesome. I wrote for the World of Darkness in a couple incarnations as a a side writer. I've done a bunch of stuff for Delta Green, Unknown Armies was one of my very earliest projects. It was the first rule set I designed back when that was something you could just do off the top of your head and I uh, came up with the one roll engine that's been implemented in Wild Talents and A Dirty World and Better Angels and Rain. So I've been busy. Also, uh wrote a game called Dinosaurs in Space which is on deep discount at Indie Press Revolution right now so okay yeah we're really just trying to clear those out of the uh out of the warehouse
2: i don't think i've ever even heard of that one I I haven't yeah,
1: either. i'm a better writer than i am at you know marketing and self promotion
0: eh that's all right so, first off, I'm excited. I'm going to have to go pick up Dinosaurs in Space now, because that sounds delightful. <laughs> uh, if nothing else, I've got a three-and-a-half-year-old, and Dinosaurs and Space, come on. But let's let's talk about Unknown Army's third edition for a minute, because there's a Kickstarter going on right now. Yes. And I think we can safely say it has been a success. It has. They set the
1: goal at 40000 and it's currently... At, uh, 170-some-thousand. 173,
0: almost 174 right now. Like, right this second.
1: I'm looking forward to 180,000, because then there's another stretch goal that I don't have to do anything for, so. Oh,
0: wow. There we go. (laughs) That does sound good. You are on a lot of (laughs) these stretch goals. Seriously.
1: Yeah, they, uh, they keep dragging me back in, but, uh, it'll be fun. Yeah. Um. One of the things that Robin Laws did as a stretch goal for Feng Shui was a media analysis book uh, blowing up the movies where it's like, yes. okay, here's this film and here's how you mine it for ideas. And so I'm probably going to do some of that for the, what now, how long is the book I'm committed to write for them, 60,000 words or some something like that.
0: If this is uh, the book four, yes. it's up to 96 pages. I know that. Yep,
1: So they told me that'll probably be about 60,000 words.
0: Whew. So, yeah.
2: That's a project. As somebody
0: yeah. who has backed this myself, I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, <know>? same here. <laughs> I yeah. am
1: excited, too. Um, this was, you know, Unknown armies sort of languished for quite a while. Uh-huh. And you know, people always liked it and I'd periodically get the question when are you going to do something new for UA and my answer was always when I have something new to add that I think is as good as what we've already done. Because what I really didn't want to do was just put something out just to tread water, but when we uh it was one of the bundles of holding uh, that that Alan Varney runs and it was the Unknown Armies one was very successful and the guys at Atlas are like, wow, there's significant demand and we're running low on print volumes of uh second edition. What would you think of doing a third edition? And Tyne said, Oh, Stolzi can do whatever he wants. And I said, Well, I need to have a team of good freelancers to sort of see things from a new perspective and to look at it in a way that I hadn't. Mm -hmm. And so that's, uh, that's what we started with and we got some great people to work on it and it's, you know, came up with a a lot of exciting new perspectives and just, you know, reading through the old version, it's like, this is good, but it is clearly a product of its time. There's uh it, it, does not address the ubiquity of cell phones very well, and you know, you, <laughs> true. I it
2: was, well, they were relatively new technology when it was written, aren't they? Yeah, there?
1: I mean, if you look back at uh, you know the television based school from the earlier edition, it's completely obsolete now. I had no idea that we would live television in a different way in
0: you know a decade. So yeah. here we are. Yeah. Yep. So. There is a slim possibility that despite my best efforts, somebody tuning into this episode might not know what Unknown Armies is. And okay. I've, I have done my best to teach people about Unknown Armies. <laughs> You're one of the good ones. Well, there's,
2: a, there's a, always the possibility this is somebody's first episode. so Could be. So give give us a
0: bit more than an elevator pitch, but kind of a general rundown of what UA is generally. Kind of the, the whole oeuvre of it. All right. Um...
1: Unknown Armies is, you could call it a magical realism film noir game almost, or a hard, let's say hard-boiled magical realism. It's set in the present day, but with the assumption that there is all kinds of weird, grotty magic going on in the unexamined corners of, uh, you know, the cities and towns. We did not want it to be a traditional occultism game, as we were starting this, Tynes had just read Foucault's Pendulum, which uh-huh. he views as the last nail in the coffin of, you know, sort of the Illuminati Templars, uh, theosophist approach. And so he wanted something that was more accessible and resonant for what people care about these days. The other element he was steering away from was the lovecraftian idea of you know complete alienating science horror so you know it was it was sort of it's sort of a space defined in defiance of uh of other stuff that's gone before because we didn't want to redo the world of darkness because you know, why would you redo that we've got them doing that and he didn't uh-huh. want to redo call of cthulhu because again it's already been done so we were, we were trying to find something new and sort of this chaos magic idea that you could pour your attention into some particular element of you know, life and everyday experience and thereby make it magical. That appealed. And that's, that's what we wound up with. As the game has grown, what it has come to be about is obsession. It is assumed that the characters in unknown armies are driven fixated individuals. It's you know, it's right there on the character sheet. And so what we've tried to do with Third Edition is make it more of a game about, you know, getting what you want, even when that is extremely, extremely difficult and problematical. And, uh-huh. you know, how far are you willing to go? To achieve the object of your desire. And one thing I try to be very careful about in the text is to say that it is you know, completely okay for you to go partway towards your objective and then decide, No, you know what? If the cost of this is I have to abandon my family, that's too far. You know, I don't want to become a monster just to achieve my objective. Or alternately... If you say, no, it's worth it, you know, uh, you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. I'm going to do this horrible thing in pursuit of the greater good. That's also valid. It's less fixated on the ends than on the means. It's, you know, how does your character change in the course of chasing after what he or she is after?
0: Right. And I know it's always been really about people, which is one of the things that we're really going to focus on in this episode there's it's not so much about beating a monster or that kind of horror it's really all about here are people and they're just awful fine thanks very much we don't need monsters to have horror
1: yeah it's it's not about beating a monster it's about being a monster it's you know what kind of glorious freak are you willing to turn yourself into in pursuit of your passion right it's it's the question of the 21st century, frankly. <laughs>
0: well, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I wish I could I argue with that. All right. Um. So one thing I want to say to our listeners who have been around for a while: we don't do shows that are plugs in their entirety for a particular product, and we're gonna try our best not to do that in this episode. We're gonna try and you know branch out a little bit, keep things a little generic, that sort of thing. At least somewhat system agnostic. But here's the thing. Unknown Armies was my first role-playing game that was not Dungeons & Dragons, and it has had easily the biggest impact on my gaming career of any RPG that I have read. This, oddly enough, despite my never having had a chance to play or run Unknown Armies. (laughs) Um, It's just, in the same way that I would say that everybody needs to read Nobilis, for example, like the first edition Nobilis, even if you don't play it because it's kind of hard to play... It's one of those games where you go, huh, well, that just changed all of my gaming for the better, just for having read the book. Unknown Armies is eminently playable, but it had the same sort of effect on me, where I looked at it and said, wait a minute, there is a better way. I get it now. I get gaming
2: in ways I didn't before.
1: You're making me blush.
2: Good. I'm going to make you blush a little bit, too, because the other thing that I'm going to add to that is I'd heard the name before, but I wasn't really familiar with it until Grant started talking about it. It And wouldn't stop. I would say it's probably the single most readable RPG I've ever come across. And there's some very good ones out there. And I have quite a few in my collection. So... Yep. Oddly enough, the
0: second most readable RPG I've ever read, I think, is Rain. Oh, thanks. It's nice having an RPG with a strong authorial voice. And, you know, obviously I agree with
1: you, but there are others who disagree. There are people who think that every game book should be... Uh, written like a technical manual, right? And that it should be all nutrition and no flavor. And I tend to think that you can have both, uh, but sometimes probably err on the side of, you know, being funny.
2: Do people really have that much difficulty sleeping? So much that even your entertainment needs to be able to put you to sleep? I mean, come on.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah. Now you're making me want to get one of those books for, you know, those those nights when I'm lying in bed thinking about stuff. So I'm like, oh.
2: A uh, calculus just... textbook would probably work too.
1: No, that I wouldn't even be able to understand.
0: I'll just send you product documentation. It's what I have to look at all day. Oh. I, I work in software, so. I, yeah, uh, the technical manual thing, I
1: get it. <laughs> I, I was a technical writer for a while. Uh, it, it did not go very well. I was writing um, the manual for control systems for like car washes Ooh. didn't really
2: understand what I was doing but uh yeah. I can just imagine how that was received I don't know how to work this thing but it changed my life <laughs> there you go
0: but yes yeah, so I, I've had people ask me Grant you've been shilling unknown armies why would you play that what's the selling point and everything that Greg just said you know explaining what the game is is one of the selling points but the other thing is the rules and the setup and the advice in particular in ua second edition which is what i own because it's what i have the most experience with obviously right but from what i have seen of third edition i'm i'm just as confident in that the gming advice the way of looking at games the way of looking at story the way of looking at conflict that's embedded in that game is very powerful and really the advice that i give on saving the game is in many ways an echo of what is in Unknown Armies. So if you like me talking, just get Unknown Armies. You'll kind of get where I'm coming from.
1: So, Well, that, uh, that's you can tell it was written by English majors who you know had, had been involved in taking apart stories and analyzing them and seeing how they work. And I think that as, uh, as the game has developed, it's found that it works better and better with a focus on character, right? Oh, yeah. And you can think of it as, you know, D&D is the game that focuses on plot. And, uh, you know, a good D&D game can be, or at least the, the ones I'm used to playing. I don't know. I, the last edition I played was 3.5. I should probably get some time in with 5. But it was all very much focused on how do you accomplish this task. And that's the core of plot, You've got Unknown Armies, which is all about, you know, who is doing this? What is happening to your character? How does what you're going through change and affect you? And how do you, being the unique, special, psychotic snowflake that you are, change and affect the people around you and the events around you? If I had to pick a game that sort of parallels literary tone, because we've got, like, you know, d d for plot, Unknown Armies for character... For Tone, I'd probably go for Dread, the game with the Jenga blocks. Have you played that one? Oh, we love Dread around here. Yeah. So that just is one of those things. It's like Thomas Ligotti's writing where it's like, oh, yeah, I've got Tone and I will include everything else to the degree that is minimally necessary to support Tone. Right. And anything else is just gonna be drag on uh you know on the process. It's like trying to build an airplane that's as light as possible.
0: Sure. Uh the other one that I would think echoes that, especially hewing close to unknown armies, is don't rest your head.
1: Mm-hmm. I can see it.
0: Not quite the same, but a very similar sense of look, we're we're getting a, a feeling from the game and here's some mechanics to keep that feeling going. Yeah. So my my point is ultimately you were gonna get an episode about unknown armies anyway, and the Kickstarter, <laughs> and now we got Greg Stolzi on to talk Woo-hoo! about it with us. So there you go. Uh, well, you know,
1: so okay, if you liked the uh, the GM advice, you want to hear about one of the innovations that I I came up with for third uh, third edition that I think is a small thing that might have a disproportionately large impact. Because it's not really a mechanical change so much as an attitude adjustment. Did you read the bit in uh, the GMing book about uh, antagonist phase and moderation phase?
0: Not yet. I'm, I'm working my way through the player's guide. All two, right. Two so small children. Time. Uh,
1: I've I've been there too. Yeah. Um, the deal is that I've been reading Apocalypse World. I'm like, okay. What are the games that everyone says are, you know, the the state of the art, the mainstream state of the art? In in you know, what have things moved towards? So I reread Apocalypse World and I looked at Fate, and uh, one thing that struck me was how Apocalypse World in particular structured the act of Gming, and I thought that was very uh, that that was a, a very crafty. Well, I don't want to say crafty move because it makes it sound like it's manipulative. I think it was a very insightful idea. Uh Uh, Most of us learned to GM by basically having an apprenticeship with some other GM who showed us how to do it.
0: Yeah, it's a learned skill, certainly. Passed down.
1: Yeah, and it's it's an incompletely analyzed skill. You Mm -hmm. have an idea of what you have to do, but it actually, there's a number of concerns that you have running the whole time you're GMing. Okay, I need to run the rules fairly, and I need to understand the rules, and I need to decide which rules apply. But more than that, I also have to decide, you know, what are the motivations of the character of the GMCs in this scene, but also how does that affect, you know, the, the overall plot And even if the plot's progressing, how's the pacing going? Are they getting there too fast or not fast enough? Uh, And so there's a lot going on. And if you don't know which task you're doing at the moment or why you're doing it, it's probably a a much harder uh, job than it is for someone who maybe has a more highly trained grasp of how stories function from being an English major. So what I did with Unknown Army's third is that I suggest that in between games, the GM, uh, you know, GMs always are prepping the next game before it happens. You, you, you know, OK, here's where the, the characters burn down the grocery store. So now there's going to be you know, an arson investigator coming after them in addition to whatever else they've got going on. So I suggest that in between games, when you're by yourself, you want to enter antagonist phase and just ask yourself, what is the worst thing that can happen to each character? What is the thing that is most likely to drag them away from their objective? The thing that is most likely to make them turn their backs on the other characters and say, I'm sorry, I can't do this anymore. This personal thing is more important than our collective goal. Hmm. And, uh, you know, at the same time, to prepare blowback from what they've already been doing and things from the uh, the setting as it's been established, so that you, you're you making arrows and putting them in your quiver, and you have a bunch of stuff ready to go uh, against, against each character. But then... When the game starts, you leave antagonist phase and you enter moderator phase. And when you are in moderator phase, meaning you are with people around the table, you stop thinking about yourself as the enemy of the characters and you start thinking of yourself as the fan of the story. And I want to see these characters be fascinating and cool and awesome, and I want them to face challenges that test what they are really made of and that is the attitude from which you pick which of these arrows you pull out of your quiver and actually fire because I, I you know i've read a lot online over the last 30 years or so about people talking about terrible experiences they had in games and terrible game masters and what went wrong and You know, one common complaint is that the GM deprotagonized me and had it in for the party and seemed to enjoy the game more and more as the characters failed more and more.
0: Right. And certainly that's either I'm taking agency away in, in favor of my story or I'm just gratuitously beating up on the party. Right. And
1: so I'm like, okay, can we change people's minds and shift their attitude because, you know, as awful as it is to be that antagonistic GM whose glee arises from destroying player groups, you can't deny that that guy's invested. And, you know, the thing I want to have happen in my games is for people to be invested, to be really paying attention, to be focused and want to know what happens next and be waiting for that, and you know, really care what the dice tell the next time they have to roll them.
0: And if I can say so, I think it's very hard to have a horror game where the GM doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about what can I do to the player characters, not the players, but the player characters, to really hurt them, get under their skin, push them in difficult directions, and make life hard for them because this is a horror game and a horror setting and a horror story.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You have to have that little bit of cruelty in the mix or it's just not going to work. And horror is always about being powerless in face of, you know, superior opposition or a it's always about coming to grips with something you're not sure you can change or maybe even understand and so yeah, that's your gm something that you you know maybe can't change or understand but at the same time you know horror the 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 most visible side of horror is the awfulness you know where you are you know running from the serial killer who came upon you in the cabin in the woods But the subtler part is that horror fiction is also about hope, because if you knew for sure that the serial killer in the woods was going to kill the innocent uh, hiker teens, there'd be no suspense. Uh You know, you have to hold out the hope that that maybe, you know, maybe the final girl's going to get away. Even in Lovecraftian horror, where in the long run, you know, we're all devoured by Coleopterans. You hold out the hope that, well, you know, maybe this one sailor will manage to, you know, to escape. And, you know, maybe this ragtag band will manage to put the Dunwich horror back where it belongs for another 60 years, at least. Right.
2: Yeah, there's a, a bit at the beginning of um, one of the Delta Green books, I want to say, where the guy's talking about how the situation is ultimately hopeless, but... If you work really hard, you can at least put it off until after everybody that you know is dead.
1: (laughs) Delta Green, the game of (laughs) extremely violent procrastination. Yeah, (laughs) uh, that's there's clearly uh, that was clearly a powerful influence on me because, you know, I've been uh, sweating in that uh, that mind for a while, too.
0: Sure. Uh, Uh, On that note, let's let's pause real quick. because I want to come back to all of this because this is exactly what we're talking about. But do you want to plug something else real quick, and then we should do our, our usual scripture real quick and get right back into this.
1: Okay. Uh, I could plug Delta Green. They Yeah, just had... let's,
0: let's do it, because we don't talk about Delta Green on this show because we don't have any experience with it. So tell us uh, about
1: it. Okay, so Delta Green, it's a horror game. It's basically the X-Files, if there was no hope, and, uh, you know, existing in a complete moral void and a nihilistic universe. Uh, It it is an anti-humanist setting, uh, which is, of course, arises from the H.P. Lovecraft mythos. Right. A lot of stuff is going on that looks like magic and acts like magic, but is actually just laws of science that these horrible creatures from beyond can access and we mere humans cannot understand. And so you are in the position of being the unfortunate fox molders who have to run around trying to deal with and cover up these uh, outbreaks of horror to allow people to you know, sleep at night and live normal lives, even though you no longer can, because you know what's really going on. And the kindest thing you can do is keep everyone else ignorant. When we were talking about learning how to GM, actually, uh, soon I will be going into editorial purgatory over control group, which is my ambitious attempt to write five scenarios that teach you how to GM if you've never done it before. Ooh. Okay, I like it. Uh, yeah, I, it was inspired by, you know how video games always have the the lame tutorial level where you learn the, the controls? Sure, yeah. It's like, well, what if we did that for RPGs and, you know, it wasn't ridiculous? It, it was a very interesting balancing act because I was trying to write scenarios that were simultaneously appropriate for people who'd never played a role-playing game before at all. And old, grizzled Delta Green veterans who've been, you know, playing it since the late 90s. And so the scenarios are meat grinders. Uh, You know, I, I went into it with the intent that, okay, if this runs right, only one or two agents should survive this with, you know, their sanity, health, and careers intact. But the first one, all the GM needs to know how to do is run skill rolls there's no combat in it combat is pretty much impossible uh and you know also pointless and so it's you know skill rolls and sand rolls and the player the characters are all pre-generated so you don't have to worry about character generation or any of that all you have to do is you know figure out these percentile rolls and watch the agents die and so then the second one still has pre-generated characters, but brings in combat roles and everything gets, you know, messy and loud and hairy. Uh, And then more layers of the rules get added in with these successive, you know, these successive events. Uh, And all of them are taking place with federal employees who do not have Delta Green clearance and are outside the program. So... If you go through all five of these games, the ideal is that you wind up with, you know, these five survivors or eight survivors, and they form the pool of your agents who get recruited into Delta Green. And, you know, someone from the FBI comes up and says, oh, you know that crazy thing that killed your unit in Afghanistan? Would you like to know what that is and how you could kill it? Well, you'll need to sign into our new security compartment then.
2: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Neat. That's yeah, that sounds you're, great. You're about I, to have levels of nondisclosure agreements that most mortals can't even comprehend.
1: Yeah, oh, there's there's a bit in there about there uh, in the very first one when people are uh, getting black sat clearance. And it's like, okay, make a law roll to try and figure out this fat document in front of you. And if you make the roll, it's like, wait, does this mean that? You can tap my phone at any time, come into my house whenever you feel like it, and that I have to tell you every password to every website I visit? Oh, that's just a formality. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very nice. Cool. Yeah, um, all right. So let's... Uh, Peter, I don't think we have any other news and notes, do we, for this episode? Mm-hmm. No, I think we're we're pretty light on those this okay. time out. So. Well, that's good. Let's get into our scripture real quick. Greg, uh, I know you don't have the outline open in front of you, so we're just going to do this real quick if that's okay with you no
1: that's
0: fine all right Uh, i'll go ahead and start us off with job Uh, so these are pieces of scripture that we generally think are appropriate for the conversation that we're having so this is job 38 verses four to seven where were you when i laid the earth's foundation tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions surely you know who stretched a measuring line across it on what were its footings set, or who laid the cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy?
2: This is John fifteen thirteen, Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Now we have Colossians chapter 3, verses 23-25. to
0: 25. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a
2: reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. And this is Romans 3.10. As it is written, there is no unrighteous, not even one. So obviously we've been talking about personal horror, as opposed
0: to cosmic horror or any other sort. And let's, let's get back to that, Greg. We talk a lot about cosmic horror, because I think right. cosmic horror is easy to talk about. Everybody is familiar with Lovecraft these days, or mm-hmm. at least Lovecraftian themes, I think it translates very well to video games, so people get it from that angle.
2: Well, I mean, there's Mass Effect out there, and that's got a lot of cosmic horror elements well, sure, in it. sure,
0: but, you know, any horror game, I think, has a lot of that, with maybe the exception of something like Fatal Frame. Um, <laughs> you know, but th- most of it is, hey, here's big scary stuff,
1: right? Right. Well, and cosmic horror is very scientific. It's, it's very modernist. Uh, Lovecraft was ahead of his time in that he was something of a you know scientific absolutist determinist type before that was cool in the arts. you know if you read the shadow out of time, the premise is that it's everything's determined. you know no, you will go to this place and do this thing because that's what happens. right The future is as an is as immutable as the past. Uh-huh. Humanity will pass away. The great old ones will return. Everything is doomed, and you can't do anything about it because you have no real free will or ability to change anything. And, you know, that's that's something of a scientific perspective. It's it's very hard to believe you have no free will if you haven't, you know, studied uh Newtonian physics.
0: Right. And certainly the idea the, that idea of helplessness, the idea that the universe is structured in such a way that I am doomed or that I am irrelevant, my choices don't matter, I'm helpless in the face of it, is frightening. And that that terror works. It's telling, though, that Unknown Armies has a book called Postmodern Magic. Right. That postmodern idea, as opposed to the modernist Lovecraftian perspective.
1: Well, mostly we picked that title because it sounded cool. Uh, uh, but, but I think there's some truth to it. Yeah, uh, and the idea, you know, what happened after the modernists and their determinism was that, uh, you know, along comes Heisenberg. And he's like, no, mm, things are not quite as mechanical as you'd like to believe. There's the saying about God playing dice with the universe. That, that's what you should have named your Christian podcast here. But uh, I think somebody else already had something like it. <sighs> Isn't it always the way? Yeah. We couldn't figure out a title very easily for unknown armies either. So, um, okay, where was it? Why
2: is it that always that the good names are always taken for everything, and a lot of the time they're taken and nobody's even doing anything with them, but they've claimed the name. I know. Yeah,
1: I. Re- you should have seen what I what my Superman would have looked like. But um, <laughs> fair enough. All right. So where were we? Oh, um, what I should bring up is Milan Kundera, who. Uh, when I was in college, I was dating this woman who was a huge Milan Kundera fan, so of course I became one too. And there's a bit from The Unbearable Lightness of Being where it talks about how there are basically two ways to be miserable and depressed as a human being. And one is to believe in lightness and to believe that nothing you do matters and that, you know, whether you act or don't act, the outcome is essentially the same. And that's sort of the the Lovecraftian perspective, right? Humanity is terminally light. So what you have as a cosmology in Unknown Armies is the idea of a sort of universal Republican democracy, that when an idea in human society achieves enough force, the person who best embodies that idea is removed from Physical reality and becomes an undying principle, living in a higher realm where uh, probability and reality are are one.
0: Right. These are the archetypes we These all. These are kind the of...
1: archetypes, the ascended archetypes, like the mother and the masterless man, and uh, you know the judge and the chronicler and the healer,
2: and the executioner.
1: So, So on and so forth. Right. And so the cosmology of Unknown Armies says that as soon as there are 333 of these archetypes, they compress into a creative deity who destroys the universe and recreates it anew. And so the stakes you're playing for in Unknown Armies, if you're playing the Ascension game, is that you are trying to get your guy elected into this group. And there are, you know, several avenues to it, all of which provide interesting plot lines. But the upshot of this cosmology is that the reason there are problems in this life we live is because we made it that way. The horrors do not fall at the feet of an uncaring universe, but they were baked in intentionally because the last iteration of the universe some social roles, representative, was evil enough to want the Holocaust to happen, and that's on us. Uh, but similarly, all the greatness of life, that's also on us. You know, everything that happened, at, you know, the, the structure of this world is the result of the choices we made, and that's the other side of uh, you know the Kundera book the other way to be unhappy with your life is to believe in weight and to believe that everything is very important and every choice you make is crucial and that uh, you know this is the burden that uh, great leaders have to face is that you know okay if i screw this up people are going to die for nothing uh-huh. and even if i make the right choice people may die just for something but i have to decide that that it's that it's worth it that their sacrifice is worth what we're getting and that's where unknown armies sits you are in the position of having to decide what is worth it for what you want it is therefore a heavy game
2: Uh, (laughs) unknown armies is essentially why presidents age so much in office the role-playing game in other words
1: (laughs) Well, and, you know, but at the same time, so you have that, that horror of heaviness, but you can also have the horror of weight, of uh, weightlessness where it's, you know, I know exactly what I want to do. I know exactly how I want to change things, but I can't because the man is keeping me down. So uh, there's a, a lot of there's a strong fight the power element in, uh, in the third edition, especially uh, one thing we did with completely reinventing character generation is that it's now a collaborative process that generates uh, the local setting at the same time you create your characters. So the way we do it is, uh, it's like, uh, you know, those conspiracy cork boards where you have pictures of people and, you know, strings between them and little post-it notes saying, you know, brother, question mark, who is the kingpin? Oh sure. Um,
0: any investigative
1: bulletin board in any TV show ever. Absolutely. So we encourage people to build those and so your characters are, you know, stuck on here and you connect them. But the first thing you come up with is, you know, before you know your character's name or anything about him or her, you say we together the group want this and we want it badly enough to kick someone. This is our objective, and it's just accepted that we are not normal people who will go along and get along and you know compromise on a quotidian level. It's you know, no, we are gonna do this, uh, and you know I've got a, I've got some fun examples of uh, you know objectives you can start out with. Uh, one I was uh, I was at a convention in Colorado recently and was giving examples to a. a group that I was running through character generation and the one they really all liked was the idea that oh no the whole thing about dinosaurs that's that's a lie all those giant bones came from dragons and we know this because our ancestors were dragon slayers and if you slay a dragon and you eat part of its body you will absorb its power like you know that guy in the Norse myths who ate the dragon's heart and then could understand the language of birds That's totally true. So what we're trying to do is get enough dragon bones together, find a way to resurrect a dragon, and then kill it again so that we can renew our family's powers. So that was their their starting objective, you know, become dragon bone heirs. And then as character generation spun out, one character decided that he and this other character were brothers, and then the other character decided that a third character was their dad. And the player who you know got stuck in the dad position is just like, wait, what? <laughs> I, I, you guys are my. Well, you sons have disappointed me very
0: badly. This reminds me just a little bit of fiasco. The idea that you know I... you're creating relationships at character creation at, oh, yeah. during the setup.
1: That in Smallville, uh, Cam Banks is is developing Unknown Armies for Atlas, right. and he you know really jumped on that with both feet because his experiences uh, doing Generation that way for Smallville were very positive for him. And the Moriarty to Unknown Armies Sherlock Holmes has always been the people who say, "Well, it's a great game, it's a neat setting, it's well written, but what do you do?" Because with most, you know, with D&D, the question of what do you do is pretty straightforward. You go in the dungeon, you kill the dragon. It's right there in the title. Right. And And, uh, you know, I'm thinking of playing Return to the Temple of Elemental Evil, where it's like, okay, what's my motivation? Oh, if I don't do this, the world is doomed. Oh, okay. That's a good motivation. That's a, That's a strong motivation. But it is you know, in the most literal sense, very conservative, right? You are trying to conserve something. You're trying to keep things from changing. You're trying to maintain the status quo. In D&D, the status quo is the universe is undevoured by elemental evil. Okay. But Unknown Armies, again, because we're contrarians, is a, do I want to say revolutionary game? The idea in Unknown Armies Three in particular, is that there is something about the status quo that you can't take, and that you are going to change or die trying. And so a lot of the player-facing stuff is about, okay, here's your objective, you know, you're going to have to pick out ways to get close to your objective, you're going to have to set milestones, but you'll know when you get there. Whereas A lot of the GM facing stuff is, okay. here's how you deal with pacing issues as your players pursue their objectives. And here's how you, you know, throw obstacles in their way or distract them or transition them into something new.
2: Okay. Interestingly, this kind of calls back to uh, Greek myth because the heroes in that were very proactive. They had something that they wanted to do rather than just trying to protect what was, which is kind of a more modern type of hero.
1: Well, yeah, and, you know, the modern world is probably a lot more pleasant than uh, Archaic Greece was.
0: Mm.
2: Oh, certainly. We
0: have running water, for one thing. <laughs> but even then, the story was set up, you know, here is a monster that is intolerable. Here is um, you know, some injustice that is intolerable. The hero is one who goes and fixes that,
2: even if it's sometimes not entirely clear, you know, whether he's on the side of right or wrong. Well, and but in a lot of cases wasn't the monster just kind of an incidental road bump on his way to accomplishing what he really wanted to do?
1: see, I think you could Depends. make an
2: argument for both ways.
1: Um if you look at the the mythology of Theseus, he was sort of the, you know, the civic defender. Oh, this road is uh plagued with all these themed bandits like Batman villains, <laughs> yes. well, I'm going to go Batman on them as opposed to the Argonauts who didn't have any great wrong to write. They're just like, oh, you know, you know what I hear is really cool is this golden fleece. Let's go get that.
0: Yeah. Yep. Um. One other thing I wanted to touch on here. The the relationships that you create during character creation in Unknown Armies add to the sense of personal horror that UA has. Because we've talked a lot about on, on this show, and I know there are plenty of other podcasts that talk about this,
2: that the idea of a group template. Right? Which is this is who we are, right? Yeah, I think that might have been originated by Fear the Boot, actually. Yeah, it was. Or at least the terminology. Probably.
0: I think other other folks have had this idea of we should make a group instead of individual disconnected characters. But in Unknown Armies, first off, it's required by the rules that you're connected to at least one other person, at least in 3rd edition.
1: And to have a relationship with the group as a cabal.
0: Okay. More than that, it seems like even in other games where those connections are part of character creation, there's very little stress
2: put on that relationship.
1: Hmm. Okay.
2: Yeah. I mean, you look at, like, Fate or something, and it can be entirely collaborative. There can be no stress there at all, and perhaps even some inherent resistance to stress, if it's worded correctly.
0: Yeah, and, and what I'm wondering is, is this something that helps a horror game if you put some stress on the the connections between characters at the table,
1: I think the way the way I've seen it work out so far you you could okay, so your relationships have a rating, right, and it could rise and fall if you in unknown armies, yeah, yeah, in unknown armies, if you uh you know treat the person okay, and there are five relationships there's like your mentor, your guru, uh you know your favorite person, the person who makes you happy, uh the person for whom you're most responsible, and so. If you are constantly acting like a jerk and taking advantage of your guru and never doing anything good for them in response, or you're demanding things from them that they don't want to do, percentages will diminish. Uh, if you work at it, you can improve the uh, you know the relationship. But if it hits zero, or if the person dies, that's a stress check, and you become you feel more isolated, helpless, and alone. Uh-huh. Uh, and you know, which is also mechanically tracked your, your state of mind is extremely central in unknown armies. So yeah, there is a strong mechanical incentive to take care of the person to whom you're related because if they die, it's bad for you too. You know, it, it messes up your character, which came up in play testing, uh, because the mechanics, the rules mechanics for violent stuff in unknown armies, are risky and unpredictable in, you know, the very first person, the very first character to get killed in unknown armies three was um, Royce Reed, who was in a parking lot fight with his mom's husband. And he had, you know, previously in a previous session beaten this guy up. And at this point is coming at him with a shovel The uh, stepfather pulls out a knife to defend himself, rolls really well, and Royce is just instantly dead. And all the players are just, you know, kind of shocked because it was extremely sudden. Now, granted, Royce probably would have survived if he hadn't also gotten beaten up by uh, some security goons at a concert earlier and been possessed by a ghost and self-injured. But
2: But these are
0: details. I mean, really.
1: But yeah, there's always that risk that when you go into a fight, even if you are clearly the odds-on favorite, well, you know, these things are risky and dangerous and unpredictable. You know, you could go up against someone for whom you have total contempt and they get a lucky shot, and that's the end of you. Which is why the combat chapter starts out with the uh, alternatives to fighting, and yet every game always seems to wind up with somebody trying to strangle someone else in the gas station parking lot.
2: Actually, I want to go back around to that a little bit because I I thought that was interesting in second edition when I was reading through it is that wasn't lip service that you paid to how to not get into a fight with somebody. There's, there's a lot of the same kind of advice in there that you'll get from self-defense experts where it's like, hey, this is how you de-escalate the situation. You really don't want to do this. And I think perhaps, I don't know, is there something there or is it just
1: times he wrote that and people were not surprised by this Um, because, you know, people grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons, which is all about perfectly justified violence. Right. You know, when when you're fighting a mind flayer, there's not a lot of of moral ambiguity. It's it's fight or have your mind flayed. So yeah, but
2: this we Th- those skeletons don't have families, not anymore anyway.
1: <laughs> so, but in here, you know, I had been reading about and you know, kind of getting some personal exposure to you know, what to people who had really experienced actual violence and seeing that no, this is not just something. That you do, and then you walk it. You know, you you walk it off, and rub some dirt on it, and then you're fine, and you don't think about it again. Um, that, well, and it depends again on what you're used to, which is you know, something that I I wanted to get in there is that if you have led a very very violent life, you will be blasé about violence, and you'll be calm when it happens near you. But if you have not had that kind of experience, you will be psychologically fragile, and that that fragility is maybe not an un- alloyed problem. Something that I've done uh, with third edition is I uh, I borrowed some design from my film noir game, A Dirty World. For that, I set up a series of you know good abilities and bad abilities, right, and so. One of the you know the, the most obvious pairing is probably honesty and deceit. You can't be both really honest and a really good liar. You're one or the other. If you're really good at lying to people, they'll mostly believe everything you say. But if you try and tell them the truth, they'll still only mostly believe it. If you try and tell them a lie, they'll mostly believe it. But if you're really honest, people won't believe you when you lie. But when you tell the truth, they'll know it's the truth. Uh. And so as one grows, the other gets smaller. Uh, In a dirty world, your ability to fight against superior or equal opponents is contrasted with an ability to fight against lesser opponents. So it's basically you can be a hero or you can be a bully, but you can't be both. And so there's a little bit of that in Unknown Armies now, too where how hardened you are to certain of uh, to categories of the awfulness that happens to to humanity affects how you deal with people if you have seen a lot of violence in your life you will be better at fighting with people but the drawback is that you will be worse at making genuine emotional connections with people because if you if your instinct is to view everybody as, okay, what's the fastest way I could cripple this person? You're not going to be approachable. You're not going to be fun to be around.
2: To uh, paraphrase something that uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman wrote, even the sheepdog has fangs. <laughs> you know, Even even if your, your capacity for violence grows up out of a sincere desire to protect weaker people and you would not dream of turning around and you know harming somebody who was not trying to do violence themselves people can still sense that capacity it's why people are nervous around cops and soldiers mm-hmm. it's like they might be your killer but they're still a killer
1: it's funny that to mention grossman i actually uh i got today the next delta green uh the the delta green players book basically i got the preview to you know, before they send it out they send it around to all the writers and say okay Look for typos, look for mistakes, you know, look for layout errors and, and things that are crappy. You know, this is your last chance before we fill in all those page XXs. And one of the books I cited for Delta Green was uh, Grossman's On Killing. And in fact, there's a novel I wrote which has uh, a couple characters in it who were sort of, their personalities were informed by Grossman's observations. Uh, it, in Mask of the Other, which is sort of my military uh, Lovecraftian novel, there's, there's one character who is, you know, loyal and polite, and he's the good one, and uh, law-abiding and helpful, but he's one of those, uh, you know, one of Grossman's 3% who just does not have a natural disinclination to kill people, and he's, you know, a sniper with a number of confirmed kills and when it's time to get someone killed you go to this guy and one of the other characters is sort of odious and sexist and crude and you know sticky-fingered and you know just sort of a dirtbag but in almost all the combat scenes he never shoots at the enemy He's, you know, he's driving the car, he's fixing the radio, he's performing first aid, he's dragging people out of harm's way. He does not seem to have that killer instinct, even though he's a scumbag.
2: That first character kind of, uh, sounds a little like Dick Winters, actually.
1: It's Dick Winters.
2: The officer from Band of Brothers? I haven't watched
1: Band of Brothers. Everyone keeps telling me it's so great.
2: He's a He was a very interesting historical figure. He was this, uh... World War II officer that some of my friends who have served in the military say is still kind of held up as a role model by the U.S. military today. He was a very decent guy. He was a really good tactician, very kind of moral, honorable, upright kind of guy uh, throughout his entire life, really. He's a very interesting person, probably the closest any actual human being has ever gotten to being Captain America. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah,
1: people have different capacities. Um, I actually ransomed out at one point a uh, a short story that was a sequel, a a non-mythosy sequel to *Mask of the Other*, called *Whatever Happened to Lala?* And uh, one of the major turning points in this story is that the protagonists have sort of home invaded this guy who's doing terrible, terrible, terrible things—just a human monster. And so the question is, is our protagonist going to murder him? And, you know, if he isn't, how do you let him go? And, you know, if you want spoil, Well, I won't provide spoilers, cause, you know, but that's sort of the, you know, a turning point of a fairly horrifying story that, although it's uh, set in a mythosy setting, really does read more like an Unknown Army story because that one has no... Uh, no paranormal elements in it. It's just, okay, well, we promised this guy we would look after his ex-wife, and she's in trouble. What are we going to do about it? Huh. Um, Interesting. And in fact, Grossman gets name-checked in the most recent story that I released, which, to you know, make it relevant, I started writing it as an unknown army story, took it to my writers' group, and they're like, This is a good crime story. What is all this weird stuff about the woman with a, like, bone-encrusted Etch-A-Sketch? That doesn't fit. And they were right. So I took that out and made it a gritty crime story called A Series of One-Sided Conversations. And uh, the lady hitman in the story talks about Grossman and how she's like, yeah... He figured there were some people who just had, like, this broken valve in their brain that makes it so that they don't mind killing people, and I guess I'm one of those. (laughs) There you go. Yeah? Yeah, she's fun. That's the podcast I was assembling this morning, so. Aha.
2: That'll
1: go out to the backers soon.
0: There you go. All right, we are running long already, uh, but I did want to hit on one last thing for you. Aside from the stuff that is in Unknown Armies, (laughs) what are some good other traits, things that make a good horror story at this personal scale, you know, where it's people as scary things instead of, as opposed to cosmic horror? What else is needed for that Um, recipe to work? What I'm
1: immediately thinking of is The Babadook. Have you watched it?
2: I have not. Oh, man, is it No, it's come highly recommended to me by a number of people, but I haven't watched it yet. But I will put it in the show notes. The Babadook is one of those horror stories that's about
1: X, but it's really about Y. And the X is typical haunted house stuff, you know, creepy happenings, danger, peril. But the Y, what it's really about is it's about mourning and loss and how do you deal with the death of a loved one and so the the supernatural horror and the just gut-wrenching watching this you know widow single mother try to deal with being a widowed single mother which is hard enough when you're not haunted by the babadook that's what really makes it work and the characters in it feel extremely real they're not afraid to be rotten at times uh you you watch it and uh, the little boy um the widow's son you know half the time you just want to give him a cup of cocoa and say oh son i can't promise you that everything's going to be all right because you know that's a lie but i'm so sorry i'm so sorry and then the other half of the time you just want to smack him he's this you can see why nobody wants to put up with this little turd and so that tension is what makes it great is that you know yeah even these people who drive you nuts you still don't want to see it get baba babaduked and i think you can uh add that into pretty much any horror game uh Delta Green deals with it by, you know, giving you bonds and saying, you know, these are the the people that matter to you on your petty quotidian human scale. And cosmically, they are nothing, and you know that, but you still want to go get ice cream with them. And Unknown Army's uh, relationship rules lend themselves to that too. You know, these people may be bad in some ways, but they're your bad people
0: and i think it would help to make that horror story good if those feel like real people these can't be just quick sketched characters right right warts and all many many warts yeah and and so i think one of the things that i think happens as a result of that is the number of characters gets turned down you focus on a few that you know that you have these relationships with rather than hey here's a host of npcs And I, in my writing and in my gaming, I do tend
1: to bring in the cast of thousands, but that's something I just, that's just my problem. Mm -hmm. I just tend to want to create new characters all the time.
0: Well, I think that's a a writer and, you know, world builder trait is, hey, let's just make, let's make things, you know? (laughs) So I I get that. Certainly when I'm heavy in world building, there are NPCs just kind of coming off the pencil, right? And then when I'm... When I'm playing other games, it's like, no, nah, let me just build up this one character and keep coming back to him instead of, hey, here's a guy, here's a guy, here's a guy. So you won't believe the shocking backstory of
1: the guy who gives you directions to the chicken shack,
0: <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, also, there's a hey, let's make sure I actually have a game prepped next Friday kind of thing. You know, there's yep. that. Yep. Um, I,
1: Emphasize I think besides the-, the achievable.
0: Yeah. The one other thing I wanted to touch on real quick for this this sort of personal scale horror story really is stress. Because I think playing out that stress is really important. It happens somewhat with a lot of cosmic horror games, but I've played cosmic horror games where it's like, yeah, I'm rolling sanity and I'm insane. Cool. You know? And I think it's easier to do that. In some of those games rather than, OK, this is this is what's really happening to me in this particular way. Well, and yeah,
1: I uh, I wanted to provide guidelines for what it means to have, you know, a certain number of failed notches uh-huh. in your isolation gauge. You know, if you are disengaged from if you are disengaged from from community to the extent that it's like a sickness, what does that mean? And when you've gone, you know, when you've maxed out your fails at five and you are completely, you know, you have gotten something very badly broken in the way you interact with your community, what is that? And how does that, you know, how does that play out and how does it affect you? Uh, On the other hand, if you have a certain number of hardened notches in your relationship to the community through your isolation gauge, what does that mean? What does it mean that you are, reserved and protected and don't care what the squares think of you it was a balancing act to get it because i knew that people would have both failed notches and hardened notches and so you'd have to have it set up so that you can have lots of both and be atypical in uh, in two different ways uh but i think i you know i think i got it uh, i think i got it in a way that it doesn't feel forced or artificial and you know that a large part of unknown armies and uh, a dirty world is this idea that the mechanics are your character's personality or are elements of what has happened to them or the remainders on, the reminders on them of the interior stresses they've gone through they're the the summation of what they've been through in their lives and you know i think that helps people get in character and, you know, that's what the game was built to focus on, is character. Sure.
2: Uh Peter, do you have anything else? Um I'll I'll throw this out and you can you can answer this as much or as little as you want to, I guess, Greg. Uh how much does your own personal faith affect how you process this stuff and write it?
1: Um, I
2: would say
1: a lot at a non- non-conscious pre-logical level and to some extent uh you know in the conscious thought level too but it's just my outlook um it is important to me to know what right and wrong are and to have uh you know a feeling uh that that i'm operating on some kind of principle right and the principle that I've chosen is to try and you know, live a Christian life and you know embrace compassion as much as I can, you know, to, to the fullest extent. And I figure as long as I am behaving with compassion, I can't go too far wrong. And I'm sure that reflects that's reflected in my writing in ways uh both intentional and completely uh unintended.
0: Huh. Interesting. <laughs> I, I say that's interesting because I read the In the Beginning blog post that you wrote as part of the, uh, the Kickstarter process uh-huh. for Unknown Armies, and the little parenthetical that you put in about what you were doing while working on Unknown Armies at first struck me
1: Yeah, well, pretty yes, strongly. I- I, I was working as the secretary for a group of uh of social workers who, who specialized in abused kids, which is extremely, extremely demanding, difficult work that I couldn't uh, ultimately stay with. They talked about how you have to be able to build a psychological box where you know when you come to work you open the box and the the stuff you deal with at work, you operate on it inside the box and then at the end of the day, you close the box up and you leave it at work, and you go home, and you don't let it get to you. Then, because otherwise, you'll burn out. And I had not constructed the box; um, I did not have a very good box. And you know, thinking about it just now, I'm like, oh, hey, that sounds like having enough hard notches that you can do your job without panicking all the time.
0: Yeah, uh, we've got some friends who do. Um who use role-playing games as therapeutic tools for abused children, sexually abused in particular, sexually mm. abusive kids. That's the Bodana group. Any long-time listener knows we've talked about them plenty of times. And the the term they use for caregivers who are dealing with that sort of thing is compassion fatigue. huh. And I suspect that that's a lot of that, and it's, okay, this is wearing me. What do I do with it?
1: Yep. Well, and that's what the Duke's about. Uh, hmm. In some ways, it's just, you know, OK, you know, I have dealt with this kid's grief so long and it has been so hard. And oh, guess what? On top of that, I also have my own grief that I've been dealing with for so long and it's so hard. Hmm. And now we're haunted.
2: I'm, I'm curious to these people that you worked with. Give you any advice for how to construct that box? Or did they just tell you it was necessary well, and kind of say go? No, they just
1: box. There we go. They uh, wow. you know, did not seem to have... Uh, the, uh, if they gave me advice on it, I, didn't, I wasn't paying attention or have forgotten it in the interim because that was decades ago. But as you can tell, gotcha. it made a, a strong impression. Uh, that was one of the jobs that made me say, well, I'm better at creating fictions than I am at doing this so good enough I'd better stick with the fiction I wouldn't
2: feel bad about that yeah. I, mean, I think that's a very small number of people that can do that for any length of time yeah. and not have it
1: yeah. and well, kind of mess them up it's incredibly demanding and you know I was just a, even just being on the periphery like I was typing up files and making coffee was demanding so doing the actual work I suppose that's why they you know go to school for four years or however many it takes to get your MSW
2: yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember uh doing an internship with the local sheriff's police um back in my college days, and one of the things that they had me doing is they stuck me with the people in the office and um the folks in there were like, hey, you know, we've got this big stack of police reports that needs to be organized and filed. You know, as long as you don't talk about anything, you can read as much as you want to. These are, you know, official reports. I stopped reading after a while. I was like, Oh my gosh, all of this this pain and you know, stuff that these people have gone through and these just incredibly tragic situations and it's like, I live in McHenry County. I mean, these are a bunch of small towns up here. Mm-hmm. This is not this is not downtown Chicago. This is not New York City. And it's just like man, that stuff is One everywhere. One
1: thing I learned growing up in Iowa is that you don't have to live in downtown Chicago or New York City for awful, awful stuff to happen. So. It's, you know, it's the human condition.
2: Yeah. Yep. It very much is.
0: And on that cheery note, (laughs) uh, um, (laughs) uh, let's wrap up. Uh, Greg, thank you for coming on. It's been a delight to talk with you about psychological horror and good games and fiction and storytelling and everything else.
1: It was a pleasure to be here.
0: Where can people find you on the internet if they want to know more and if they want to check out your other work?
1: www.greggstolsey.com
0: which of course will link in the show notes uh, and of yes. course you're on Twitter and a few other... I'm on
1: Twitter and I'm on Google Plus. I stopped Facebook I just sort of... I just couldn't
0: <laughs> it, It's largely a family feed. I, I understand Yeah. So
1: yeah, um, yeah. is has got a ton of the uh, free fiction that I've been uh, putting out uh, over the years and uh, you know, a lot of other stuff I announce, you know, new game projects there. So, yeah, it's fun well, on the bun.
0: Excellent. And, of course, we will link the Kickstarter for Unknown Armies 3rd Edition Woo-hoo. in the show notes. Uh, you can, of course, search it, Unknown Armies. It's not too hard to find on Kickstarter. Just out of curiosity, uh, yeah, it added three backers while we had a conversation. So, <laughs> you know, <Nice>. it's <laughs> it's still going strong, and you will have... A fair bit of time by the time when this episode drops, you should have at least a couple days, I think a week, to back it if you have not already done so. There are some really cool rewards on there. that um, We don't plug stuff on this show, by and large, unless it's something... We don't plug things in general. We never plug anything we don't like. So... <laughs>
2: Yeah. Yeah. All um right. the the well, strength thanks. with which we are plugging this should tell you something, listeners. I'm, yes. glad
1: to, I'm glad to be the exception.
0: Like I'm pretty sure the only thing I've talked about on this show more than unknown armies is CS Lewis. So, you know. That <laughs> nice. uh, says a lot. All right. Greg, thanks again for coming on. It's been delightful. And for those of you who are hanging around at home listening to this, uh let us know what you think about third edition and if you have anything to follow up with us on you can find us on social media facebook.com slash saving the game twitter.com slash saving the game we're also on google plus you know if you like the episode rate and review us and let us know if you have any comments in the show notes catch you later folks have a good one take it easy thanks a lot this podcast episode is a production of saving the game and may be redistributed under a creative commons non-commercial non-derivative license so long as appropriate credit is given our music is by ryan humphrey Saving the Game is syndicated through inroadsministries.com, rpgpodcasts.com, stitcher.com, and iTunes. To hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, and happy gaming.